Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Alelia Bundles. She is the author of On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, a book about her great-great-grandmother, who was a successful entrepreneur in the early 20th century. Her nonfiction book is the inspiration for Self Made, a fictional Netflix series starring Octavia Spencer. After a 30-year career as an executive and producer with ABC News and NBC News, she is now brand historian for Madam, a line of hair care products inspired by Madam Walker. She is also vice chair emerita of Columbia University's Board of Trustees and chair emerita of the National Archives Foundation. She founded the Madam Walker Family Archives. Her articles and essays have been published in the New York Times, Book Review, Variety, TheUndefeated.com, Al Jazeera, Parade, Ms., O Magazine, Essence, among others. Bundles is currently working on her fifth book, a biography about her great-great, her great-grandmother, titled The Joy Goddess of Harlem, Alelia Walker and the Harlem Renaissance. Alelia Bundles will give a talk titled Your First Duty is to Humanity, Echoes of Derek Bell in Madam C.J. Walker's Activism and Entrepreneurship as the U of O Law School's Derek Bell Lecture on February 9th, 2022. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Absolutely delighted to be here. So first, tell us a little bit about your background and what led to your interest in journalism. So I grew up in a household where both of my parents worked in the hair care business. My mother was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company, which had been founded by her great-grandmother. And my dad was actually president of a different hair care company. He'd worked for the Walker Company shortly after my parents were married, but then became president of Summit Laboratories. But my real passion was writing. And um, my parents encouraged me to do what I wanted to do. And I later discovered both of my parents were really excellent writers, but that hadn't been an option for them. And I followed the path to become a journalist. And when I was at Columbia University Journalism School, my advisor, Phyllis Garland, who was the only black woman on the faculty, recognized my name, Alelia, made the connection with Madam Walker and her daughter, Alelia Walker. And when I gave her some lame topics for um, papers, which I'm sure most professors <laughs> understand, at the end of the conversation, she said, your name is Alelia, do you have any connection? And I said, yes, that's my family. And she said, that's what you're going to write about. So that set me on this parallel path to having a long career in network television news, but also beginning to uncover the interesting stories about the women in my family. So could you tell us um, quickly, give us a thumbnail sketch of your long career in journalism? So I um, started in the junior, my junior high school newspaper and high school. And then when I got to college, I worked for the radio station uh, at Harvard because the Crimson, the newspaper was way too much work uh, and too much hazing. And I decided I wanted to have fun. So I was a jazz DJ and that turned into an internship at WBGBH and uh, going to Columbia and then working for 13 and a half years at NBC News as a producer and then 16 years and change as a producer for World News Tonight, Deputy Bureau Chief in Washington, and then Director of Talent Development. Do you think your experience as a journalist helped you to write about your family? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's as if I did this 30-year detour to learn how to tell stories and to learn how to use all the visual elements and to learn how to publicize something 
uh, as a way to create an opportunity and an avenue for me to tell this incredible story about these women. So, I mean, you've already begun to answer my question. My next question is what inspired you to write about your great-great-grandmother? Tell us why she was so inspiring. Well, you know, but I will answer that, you know, what inspired me to do it. I mean, Phil, Phil Garland really validated the story for me. And this is the mid 1970s when um, there were very few books by or about women and people of color. Nobody was knocking on my door saying you need to write this story. And Phil really gave me permission to tell that story. So that, you know, that pushed me in that direction. But I mean, you know, but for that, maybe eventually I would have told it. But, you know, I needed I needed somebody at that moment when there were still some of the people alive who had known them. So who was Madam C.J. Walker? So Madam C.J. Walker was born Sarah Breed Love in Delta, Louisiana in 1867, first child in her family, born free on the same plantation where her parents and older siblings had been enslaved. She was orphaned at seven, married, she said, at 14 to get a home of her own to escape the treatment of a cruel brother-in-law, widowed at 20 with a daughter, Alelia, moved up the river to St. Louis where her older brothers had moved a decade earlier. They were barbers. They belonged to St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. And this uneducated washerwoman was inspired and mentored by the women of the church. Her hair began to fall out. She worked as a washerwoman until she was 38, but by the time she died in 1919 uh, at age 51, she had founded Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company using the name of her third husband and become a philanthropist and a political activist and a patron of the arts. What, what led her to take on the, the, uh, the title Madam? So, you know, that that is an interesting how how women identify themselves, women in business. And there are a couple of things where her name was Sarah Breedlove, um, and she was often called Sally. But, you know, Black women were often disrespected and just called by their first names or called, you know, Aunt Sally. And she wanted to ensure that people were forced to respect her. She took the name of uh, her third husband, Charles Joseph Walker, used the initial CJ, added Madam. And women during that era who were in business, whether they were caterers or seamstresses, um, and sometimes women who ran illegal businesses, <laughs> used that title Madam. But Madam meant a woman who was in business. One of the many amazing things about her was that she was a mentor to other Black women. Would you tell us a little bit about that aspect of her life? Yeah, this is, for me, this is such an important part of her life that she mentored other women. And those seeds had been planted because when she was still poor washerwoman, Sarah Breedlove going to St. Paul AME Church in St. Louis, it, good enough voice to be in the choir, but really, you know, very poor. It was those women, those middle-class women, the school teachers uh, who reached out to her and gave her this vision of herself as something other than and a literate washerwoman. So when she began to be successful in business, she realized her customers, yes, they wanted hair care products, but what they really needed was education and uh, economic empowerment and economic um, stability. And so she organized her agents into a national organization that was very similar to the National Association of Colored Women that some of these women had belonged to in the 1890s 
and early 1900s. So she, because she had benefited from the kindness and generosity of other women, she realized that she needed to give back. And that was what her customers really needed. Can you tell us a little bit more about her most significant achievements as a philanthropist and activist? So even when, even when Sarah Breedlove was a poor washerwoman, she was in the Might Missionary Society. So she might be able to give a penny or a nickel uh, out of her meager wages. But as she began to become more prosperous, she, people would come to her and ask for things. You know, Can you give me a little bit of money? Can you help me? So she started by giving people in the neighborhood you know, turkeys at Christmas time. That expanded to her first really significant gift, which was $1,000 to the Black YMCA in Indianapolis at a time when Black, when the YMCAs were segregated, but Black YMCAs were being built in several cities around the country due to the largesse of Jesse Moreland, one of the first Black secretaries at the Y, but also to Julius Rosenwald, who was um, president of Sears Roebuck and who was very generous to the Black community. So that $1,000 kind of put her on the map uh, as a philanthropist. Then later she continued to give to Black colleges, to YMCAs, YWCAs, and her last major gift was $5,000 to the NAACP's anti-lynching fund in 1919. So it's no surprise, given how fascinating this life was, that Netflix wanted to make a, a film based on your book, Self Made, this miniseries, Self Made. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to work with them on that project and how you felt about the, the way that they went ahead and made it. You know, so it was, as they say, complicated. <laughs> and I think Hollywood, um, you know, t believes that it needs to exaggerate stories. And, you know, as a person who's been a journalist for a long time, who's worked on documentaries and a person who also understands the need to make things dramatic, I kind of wish there had been a slightly different <laughs> balance going on. Uh, but it was, it, it it was important, I think, uh, for Madam Walker's story to be told. I mean, it should have been told many, many years ago. And I think that the writers who were working on this really felt that they needed to sort of fill some formulas. Um, I thought Octavia Spencer was great. <laughs> you know, she brings such presence. Uh, she took the, the story seriously. She wanted to honor Madam Walker. But I think some of the storylines, the, the sort of conflict, the you know, cat fight between two women, that would, didn't really happen, but it's kind of a Hollywood cliche. And I think you know, an unimaginative writer thinks that that's, that's the way people will be interested. Um, I thought Booker T. Washington was you know, made into a caricature. The women, that's that sort of first generation out of slavery, they were creating institutions and organizations and I think there was a missed opportunity. But at the same time, I realized lots of people worked really hard on that. And I wanna honor the hard work that they did. Um, but I'm hoping that the next thing I do, because I am working on other projects that will get a little bit closer to, to the truth. I, I've been, one of my good friends, Erica Dunbar, who has been the, who's a professor at Rutgers and who has been uh, the president of the Association of Black Women Historians is a consultant and a co-executive producer on this new uh, series on HBO that is done by the same person who did Downton Abbey. And that is getting lots of praise for, you know, it's a fictional story, but it's getting lots of praise for sort of sticking to 
the true threads of what actually happened, who the characters were. And I really am an advocate of Hollywood paying attention to historians. You know, not no, we don't want it to be dry, boring history because people in Hollywood think history is boring when really it is the only stories they have to tell. But I, but I do like seeing that we're moving, that they, some people seem to be moving in that direction. Is that new project based on the Joy Goddess of Harlem? No, no, no. The new, the new, this is not, I'm not involved in the project, but this is the, this is the project. And I wish I had the name, you know what, actually, do I have that? No, that's in another, this is another room. It's an article in another room, but the, but the fellows, I think it's Julian Fellows who did uh, Downton Abbey has a new project that, uh, that takes place in New York in the 1890s. Um, and it is getting a lot of praise for being, you know, closer to what, who the historical figures were. They, they're all fictional, but it's sort of who these women could have been uh, during that period of time. So I, I think there's, and there is a, there's a, there are a number of historians, as you probably know, who are involved in Hollywood projects. And, you know, even um, um, the, the show that was about the um, um, advertising in the 1950s, I mean, they were really meticulous about sticking to the history. And I think it's really important as opposed to sometimes the, the history and the facts get dismissed as irrelevant, but I think it makes something more authentic and more believable and more lasting if it can, you know, reference those touch points. And if, at the very least not uh, change the core of the person. You know, I mean, one example in self-made, again, Lots of people worked hard. Octavia Spencer was great. Uh, more people know who Madam know Madam Walker's name, even if they don't know the details of the story. But her attorney was just the rock, just a rock and sort of a straight arrow who had taken an oath at a young age to never drink, smoke, or gamble. But the way he's portrayed in the Netflix series, he's got this fictional cousin named Sweetness who is not just a numbers runner but a pimp. Uh, so that's this, you know, racial stereotype about crime. And then he gambles. And so for me, yes, that, that was a trope and maybe it moved, you know, maybe it made things more dramatic, but for me, it changed the core values of the person. So that's all I'm saying. It's just, can we, you know, yes, you have to exaggerate, you have to conflate, you have to do dramatize, but let's stick with the core of who the person really was. Well, you are you are a, a very understanding writer. Um, <laughs> given your commitment to history and the truth, um, tell us a little bit about the Madam C.J. Walker Legacy Center. So, the Madam Walker Legacy Center in Indianapolis is a National Historic Landmark built in 1927. Uh, that was the factory for the Walker Company for many years. Madam Walker moved to Indianapolis in 1910 had a factory, but it needed to be updated and she began to acquire property during the teens, but died in 1919 before the building was built. Finally, the building was completed and it's a four story flat iron building with a theater. Uh, it had a drugstore and a beauty salon, of course, a beauty school, a ballroom, the corporate offices and um, professional offices for black dentists and doctors. And it is now a cultural arts center. And just has, that's just been refurbished. Um, it is, you know, the Lilly Endowment in Indianapolis is 
a very generous um, donor in the city. And it is right across the street from uh, Indiana University, Purdue University campus. You also uh, oversee the Madam C.J. Walker archives. Tell us about them. So my Madam, my Madam Walker archives um, sounds really grand, but I, <laughs> but it is all over my house. <laughs> it, I even I have Hollinger boxes, but I am really fortunate to have had a, a grandfather who saved everything. And when Alelia Walker died in New York in 1931, my grandmother, May, moved things from her apartment and from her house to Indianapolis. So when I was growing up, my grandmother had died before I was born, but the apartment where my grandfather lived was filled with uh, first edition books by Counte Cullen and Langston Hughes and Jean Toomer and uh, W.B. Uh, du Bois. So that, that's part of my archives. Then I have lots of photographs and letters and legal papers, <laughs> you know, and, the, and some clothes and a little bit of jewelry that wasn't pawned. <laughs> so I, what, I, what I'm fortunate to have is a lot of the items that had been personal items that had belonged to uh, the women in my family. And then the Walker Company uh, also had great records and um, Madam Walker was very smart about her executive team, her lawyer, her bookkeeper, the people who, her secretary, and those people saved what has turned into a voluminous body of work, more than 40,000 pages of documents that we donated to the Indiana Historical Society. So the Madam Walker collection at the Indiana Historical Society is what allows me to tell the story. And then I have this personal collection uh, that I will ultimately donate to the Schlesinger Library uh, on the history of American women at uh, the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard. So Madam Walker also built uh, Villa Lawaro in Irvington on Hudson in New York. Tell us about that mansion. So I, you know, you've told me that you grew up there. So I, I would love to know what you experienced driving by. But Madam Walker built this home in uh, 19, moved into the house in 1918. She had been born on this plantation in a slave shack uh, in 1867 and lived in St. Louis and Denver and Indianapolis. And her daughter persuaded her to, that they needed to have a presence in Harlem and opened up a, you know, built a building in Harlem on 136th Street designed by Vertner Tandy, the first licensed black architect in New York. Uh, in 1913. And then Madam Walker's health was starting to fail and she decided she would move her personal residence to New York, leaving the company headquartered in Indianapolis. So she moved to New York in 1916. And this beautiful mansion uh, on 136th Street, I joke and say it wasn't big enough for two women. So she needed her own house and she commissioned Bertner Tandy to build this mansion for her in Irvington on Hudson, New York, which at the time was, you know, one of the wealthiest communities in America. Jay Gould was not too far away. John D. Rockefeller was a lot farther up the, the Hudson River, but it was still that sort of the area of very wealthy people. And where most of the people uh, who were building their, built their homes facing the Hudson, she intentionally built her house so that it could be seen from Broadway as people were driving by because she wanted to make a statement that a black woman uh, could achieve and she wanted to inspire, as she said, young black boys and girls 
to see what was possible. What's happened to the mansion? Well, I'm very happy to say that it is now um, owned by a foundation that was created by Richelieu Dennis. Uh, Richelieu was the founding CEO of Sundial Brands, which is now a division of Unilever, but Rich acquired the trademark for Madam Walker hair care products. Um, and when he sold Sundial to Unilever, he created a venture capital fund for women of color entrepreneurs, bought Essence Magazine and Essence Fest, and also created this foundation that, that purchased the house. So it's, uh, it's in great shape for a hundred plus year old house, but a hundred plus year old house always has stuff <laughs> that needs to be repaired. So there are a few things that are going on and it, and it will become a gathering place for some of the women who are part of the New Voices Fund, this venture capital fund. Oh, that's a fascinating, really interesting. So you mentioned um, Madam Walker's daughter. You are currently writing a biography of her, The Joy Goddess of Harlem. Tell us about Alilia Walker. So this is my namesake. And you know the truth is when I was in high school and really, you know, starting to, you know, late 60s Black history, trying to discover Black history. And Madam Walker was a little intimidating for me. But Alelia Walker, as I would, you know, read a little paragraph here, a little paragraph there, lived in Harlem during the 1920s. And I was fascinated by the writers and the artists of that era. So she was really the person who drew me into the story. Um, but and because of the because of the parties and all of that, but what I discovered as I was doing writing my biography about Madam Walker is that a lot of what had been written about her was inaccurate or just kind of, you know, frivolous. And the story, you know, the storyline was Alilia Walker. Madam Walker made the money. Alilia Walker spent the money. I mean, you know, that, that was all that she did. And after many years, and I'm embarrassed to say how long I've been working on this book, but many years of working on this book. And I've been able to create a more multidimensional person. So it's hard to be um, the daughter of a self-made woman millionaire. You know, you can never measure up. But she had her own interest. The two women shared a bond over a love of music. And they had, even when they were poor in St. Louis, their choir director was a classically trained opera tenor. They uh, lived across the alley when they were poor from Tom Turpin's Rosebud Cafe where Scott Joplin played. Her, her um, uncles had a barbershop. The cakewalk contest people would congregate there. So they were exposed to this an amazing array of music. So that by the time she got to Harlem, um, she was friends with these people. And so I love telling the story, not just about her personal journey and her relationship with her mother, but about all of these other people who were very much a part of that sort of flowering of Black culture and music and art uh, and theater during the 19-teens and 1920s. Can you tell us a little bit more about the role she played in the Harlem Renaissance? So because she had uh, her mother's wealth and her mother's homes, she had a place unlike anybody else's where she could entertain people. And she had the kind of personality that drew people to her. So if she would call up and then I have no, you know, letters and transcripts from interviews that I've done where people would say, you know, Alelia Walker called me and said, I'm having a little something tomorrow night, can you come? 
And one, one person said, when the great empress calls, you drop everything that you're doing because they're great parties. And she was known, Langston Hughes described her parties. They were always crowded. Uh, there was always some champagne. Um, there were always interesting people and good food. She was known for making a great pot of spaghetti. And so she was a person who, uh, you know, uniquely gathered people together. And when she died, one of her friends said she was the kind of person who now that she's gone, these people will not come together. She was the one who was the convener. Can you tell us some of the people that you might have met at one of her parties? Absolutely. So Langston Hughes, uh, Carl Van Vechten, uh, Max Ewing, who was a librettist for the Follies, um, James Reese Europe, who was a well-known musician of the time, Duke Ellington might have come through, Zora Neale Hurston, Counte Cullen, um, Florence Mills. So almost anybody that you can think of who was part of that era would have been at one of her parties at one time. So these books that you have written and are writing, these are books about American history, but they're also books in your family's history. Why is family history something that's important to recover and remember? No, absolutely. I, you know, I, I write the books that I wish had been written for me when I was growing up. I mean, I, I was, you know, so not interested in history, even though I got an A in history class in, in high school, it didn't, I wasn't anywhere in those books. And I just don't want another generation to have the same experience. Now, obviously there are lots of other people who are writing history now, but it was really through a family connection that I began, that history began to resonate with me, where I could, if I could see myself and I could see people to whom I was connected, that helped me create context for the era. Now, I'm really fortunate that I had a grandfather born in 1892, whose parents had gone to college, very unusual. His father had been valedictorian of his class at Lincoln and his mother had gone to Oberlin and his mother's father had been an elected official during reconstruction in Arkansas. So he told me a really different narrative than my high school history textbook. But, but through him, I knew that there were people who were black people who were doing interesting things, who were doing significant things. And that just kind of opened some doors that led to other doors being opened. We're almost at the end of our time. This will be my last question. You are this year's Derek Bell Lecture. Can you tell us a little bit about the talk you'll give at the University of Oregon next month? You know, I was so excited to be invited to give this talk because I actually knew Derek Bell. Now, I wasn't one of his students. Um, I was in undergraduate school, but I knew him because his first wife, Jewel, was in the uh, dean's office at Radcliffe when I was an undergraduate. And I knew her, and I got to know her because when I was a senior, we did a conference called the Black Woman Myths and Realities. I mean, that was, that was a big deal. And I did, because I was interested in communications, I did some of the media for that, such as it was at the time. My mother came to campus for, you know, for that. But it was, it was Jewel and another woman who was there in the Dean's office who you know, gave us who empowered some of, of the young women to create this conference that had people like Alice Walker. I mean, it was a really amazing conference, but Derek was sort of over there as Jewel's husband. And then I began to obviously understand 
what a significant figure he was. Lonnie Guineer was a senior uh, at Radcliffe when I was a freshman. And of course, the connection between Lonnie and uh, Derek Bell really standing up until there was a black woman on the faculty at Harvard uh, made me sort of tap into what he was doing. And just the brilliance of him as I just, I reread uh, Faces at the Bottom of the Well. Um, and I, you know, you just realize what an incredible mind. I, t I interviewed him briefly at one point because he had gone to University of Pittsburgh Law School, which is where my grandfather went to law school. Now, obviously at very different times, but there were, they're just little touchstones along the way that make me feel a connection to him. Not, you know, I have friends who were, you know, his students and who he mentored very closely and they have an incredible bond, but I feel enough of an intellectual connection to him. And, you know, and especially at this moment, critical race theory, you know, we need him here. Uh, we need him here to really explain that. But so many of the things that he saw uh, in his incredibly expansive mind are the things that are still going on now. Well, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you today. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. And we're looking forward to your lecture next month. I can't wait. I've been speaking with Alelia Bundles, author of On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. She'll give a talk titled, Your First Duty is to Humanities, Echoes of Derrick Bell in Madam C.J. Walker's Activism and Entrepreneurship as the UL Law School's Derrick Bell Lecture on February 9th, 2022. Thanks so much for watching. <laughs>